Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Welcome back to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and today we begin two weeks of talking with major Republican presidential candidates as we count down towards the January 15 Iowa caucuses. All the candidates were invited. In addition to interviewing the candidates, I also spoke with a top supporter for each candidate from our region who will share their reasons for backing that candidate. We begin today with presidential candidate and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He served in the U.S. House of Representatives from 2013 to 2018, was elected governor of Florida in 2018, and re-elected in 2022. I also talked with DeSantis supporter, Iowa State Representative Taylor Collins from Mediapolis in Des Moines County, south of here. He's serving his first term in the Iowa House. But we begin with Governor DeSantis. And now I'd like to welcome Governor Ron DeSantis to Heartland Politics. Governor, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Happy 2024. Hey, to you too. Um, I want to start with a with a question uh, that plays to your background a little bit. You're the only candidate with with a, a background in the military. Uh, I think the media is missing a story where our troops are getting fired on in the mid Middle East. And uh, I, I as as commander in chief, how would you handle this? Would this be different from the Biden administration? It seems like we just had troops that were injured over the weekend in Syria. We've got the uh, the interruption of commerce in the uh, Persian Gulf. How would you handle this, if at all, differently? It would be totally differently. I mean, first of all, as a Navy guy, uh, the purpose of the U.S. Navy um, is to keep the, the rounds on target and the sea lanes open. And what you're seeing uh, with these Houthi rebels is the interruption of, of commerce. Uh, they have absolutely no right to do this. Our country uh, has fought people doing that from its inception when they fought the Barbary pirates. So we have every right to take care of that, lay down the law uh, and end that problem. Now, for the troops that are on the ground in places like Iraq and Syria, uh, as commander in chief, uh, you need to be very cautious about putting troops in those situations to begin with. Uh, it's got to be a vital interest of this country. Uh, you got to have a clear mission uh, and conception of what they're trying to accomplish. And you got to give them everything they need to do. Uh, and then you bring them home when they're done. And what I see Biden is just putting troops out there. Uh, they don't really have a, a clear mission. Uh, they're not really they don't really have what they need to defend themselves. And so they're basically just sitting ducks. So you have these Iranian backed forces that are that are attacking. 
Biden will respond with like a pinprick against some building that just invites more attacks on our troops. So it's a total disaster. Uh, my policy will be very simple. Um, you know, you harm a hair on the head of America's service member, you're going to have hell to pay. And unless you're willing to send that message uh, and deliver on it, you're just inviting more attacks against U.S. troops. Speaking of national security, of course, perhaps one of the biggest, if not the top uh, security issue we face is on the border. It's now caught up in in funding for additional funding for Ukraine and for Israel and for Taiwan. Uh, Governor, uh, the, the last big compromise. So there was a compromise back in the 80s with Ronald Reagan on, on immigration. Uh, if you're elected and the Democrats control one of the houses of Congress, how would you see a framework for compromise for adding to border security? And what, what would you might have to compromise on to get everybody on board to get something to pass? Well, here's the thing. You now have a situation because of this massive invasion of 8 million people. You have liberal areas of this country like Manhattan where these liberal voters are saying enough is enough because you've got uh, illegal aliens that are flooding hospitals. Schools are becoming overrun. You have massive problems. So this is just a basic issue about are we sovereign as a country or not. Now, there's a lot that I'll be able to do without needing Congress. I mean, I'll declare it to be a national emergency. That'll let me apply funding towards the border. I'll have the military there. We'll stop the invasion, institute policies like remain in Mexico. Uh, I am going to build the border wall that, that Donald Trump promised and didn't build. Uh, and the way you get the funding for that is you charge fees on the remittances that, that folks send uh, overseas. And you have a lot of people that send money to Mexico and Central America and other places, you'd raise billions of dollars that could go to wall construction. But we do need to deport people uh, who are here illegally. You have eight million under Biden. Uh, we've got to send back. If you're not willing to send back, you're going to continue to have that. And then I'll also designate the Mexican drug cartels to be foreign terrorist organizations. They're invading this country and poisoning our population. We have tens of thousands of people dying every year because of fentanyl. This is impacting communities all across the United States of America. I've spoken with uh, families in Iowa who've lost uh, who've lost kids. And a lot of times these will be college people in their mid-20s. They take some pill that they think is something else that happens to be laced with fentanyl and they can get poisoned to death and die right on the spot. So this is a massive uh, carnage that's happening in this country. And you have people in D.C. that just kind of shrug their shoulders. Uh, I'm going to take the bull by the horns and solve it now legislatively. There are some things that that could be helpful. Uh, for example, a lot of the reasons you have this influx is because people are abusing the asylum process. There's a legitimate uh, so asylum's legitimate thing to happen, but it's rare. You would not just say because you're in a country that's poorer than ours or that has a high crime rate that you qualify for asylum. That does not work. Um, and so there may be things to do to be able to clarify the law uh, with respect to that. But I think most of what we're going to do is going to is going to be done through executive action. Um, and I don't even think it's a, it's a huge issue of funding because I think you can do the remittances to get the wall money. I think it's a matter of political will. Biden does not want to fix the problem. Uh, I think this is intentional. And so he doesn't have incentive. So I think what the Republicans in Congress are doing now is saying, you know, you, you have to fix the border before you come to us about these other issues. And I think that that's appropriate because that's the only way he's going to come to the table and actually do his job as commander in chief. But he has failed to satisfy his oath of office uh, to take care that the laws are faithfully executed with how he's handled the border. It's been an absolute disgrace.
Governor, uh, how would you handle China? I mean, it, it's it's like the bull in the China shop almost. I mean, economically, we've become more dependent on them to a degree. Uh, but yet every day you pick up the paper and see where they're uh, cheating us in some way in commerce. And I don't think that's a that's a uh, outlandish statement. I mean, it's true. It's factual. Um, how would you try to balance that, our economic relationship, but also the fact that uh, they don't seem to play by the same set of rules that we do in global commerce and and in uh, spying uh, on uh, and trying to get secrets from the United States? Uh, well, you're exactly right. I think and you hit on the two most important things is one. Uh, the United States has put itself in a position of vulnerability with respect to China because we depend on them now uh, for certain things that are vital to our national survival. Uh, we never were this economically intertwined with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Uh, and yet if there was a national crisis, heck, during COVID, every single thing you needed in terms of medical was was made in China. We have pharmaceuticals. We have things involving military. All, all these things rely on China. Uh, you need to strategically decouple that and reshore that uh, to the United States. Then you have the, the issue of, okay, we're supposed to have a trading relationship starting 25 years ago with most favored nation. They were in the World Trade Organization. And the idea was that, that they would play by a, a, a set of rules and that there would be enforcement on this. And it's been the exact opposite. Um, they've eaten our lunch. Uh, we have a totally asymmetrical relationship. They dump products uh, into the country. Uh, they steal our technology. They infringe on intellectual property. So, so you've got to bring um, America uh, uh, to to the table in terms of uh, even evening that relationship. Now, how do you do that? Well, one, what they respect is strength. So as an as a military guy, I understand we need more hard power in the Indo-Pacific in their region, because what they're looking to do, not just with Taiwan, but even beyond Taiwan, uh, breaking out of that first island chain and dominating commerce in the entire Pacific, if they're able to do that, uh, they are going to wield their power accordingly. Uh, they will condition access to markets on uh, certain behaviors, and their vision of society is very authoritarian. So it would impact the American people in a very, very big way. Uh, I think if we had adequate power in the Indo-Pacific, we would be able uh, to deter their ambitions there. But Biden is not on the right track with that. Then we also got to look at the power that they exercise over our society. For example, in Florida, I banned China from buying land, like farmland and land near military bases. We kicked them out of our universities with these Confucius Institutes that they try to set up. Uh, I don't think that we want China buying farmland anywhere in the United States. I don't think we want them buying land near critical infrastructure or military bases, and they should not be in our universities uh, the way they are, yet we've allowed that uh, to happen. So I think it's a, it's a multifaceted approach. Yes, hard power. Uh, yes, economic uh, independence, but also recognizing the amount of influence they wield here domestically uh, through really strategic behavior that our elites have just turned a blind eye towards. Switching a little bit around on that topic, but switching it over domestically, as you know, in Iowa, especially here along the uh, Mississippi River, a lot of these counties up and down the river uh, suffered due to trade agreements. Uh, NAFTA is a dirty word in a lot of these places. Um, and the WTO, the China, allowing China, and we've lost a lot of these towns uh, have lost uh, factories and uh, 
Um, how, do you agree with uh, the the uh, uh, tariffs that are put on like steel and aluminum to try to help rebuild a domestic manufacturing base here in this country? Or what are your thoughts generally, Governor, on trying to rebuild a manufacturing base uh, in these towns that have lost so much? Well, if you go back and look when uh, Bill Clinton was uh, bringing China into the WTO and granting them most favored nation, he said that it would allow our manufacturers to sell more to China, but it wouldn't it wouldn't allow China to just simply absorb all this industrial and, and manufacturing. That was the promise. And that was a broken promise that did not happen. I mean, China has absorbed so much uh, industry and so much has gravitated over there that it's hollowed out communities uh, here in the United States. And so so my the way I approach all these issues is, um, yes, you know, I'm, I'm market based. Uh, so command and control socialism that doesn't work. So, so I'm a market-based guy, but at the same time, we can't be indifferent between an American job and a Chinese job. It's not just about trying to find whatever the the, is the most globally efficient thing. Like we are elected to serve our people here in the United States. We have to put their interests first. Uh, it is not not in our interest uh, to allow China to continue to dominate industry uh, the way they are. So yes, I want to I want to reshore uh, more manufacturing here in the United States. You know, in Florida we've put an emphasis on this. Uh, we've added 100,000 manufacturing jobs since I've been governor. Uh, and part of that is we have a good economic environment. But part of it is we've put an emphasis on workforce education. I've sent the message that, look, a four-year brick and ivy university is maybe one way you can succeed, but it's not the only way. And we need to elevate the trades and elevate this type of vocational education because you have students can graduate high school now in Florida. They can go right into uh, aviation mechanics, welding. They could go into commercial truck driving. These are huge, huge parts of being uh, a strong country. You got to have an industrial base. So my policies will be designed uh, with the American people first. Uh, and I'm not just going to sit there and say, oh, well, it doesn't matter where these jobs go as long as as long as it's efficient. That that doesn't work. You're not doing your job um, to defend your people. Hey, Governor, the, the farm bill uh, was extended for another year. Uh, it's going to be up here again this year. Uh, one of the key elements, of course, is uh, renewable fuel standard, ethanol. Uh, where do you stand on that? Just to clarify, I've seen some articles recently about this. Where where, where do you stand on the, on the ethanol issue? I'm supportive of ethanol. I want to see uh, American-made energy with American jobs and American businesses. I've been able to go to all 99 Iowa counties. I visited farms. I visited uh, uh, ethanol plants. Uh, it's been an important part of the economy, not just in Iowa, but throughout the Midwest. Uh, I don't want us relying on foreign countries for energy. So biofuels is as domestic. We have oil and gas domestic. Uh, we need to utilize uh, those resources. And so uh, one of the things we'll do is we will uh, do what Governor Reynolds has asked for, uh, year-round E15 waiver, uh, but then also allow even higher blends because uh, there would be a market for that. And, and if there's a market for that and people want to produce it, you know, they should be able to without the government restraining them. So, uh, so we'll work on both of those. Final question for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican presidential candidate. Uh, I just want to allow you, uh, sir, the chance to uh, make your closing argument in, in legal terms. Uh, uh, if folks out here listening are planning to go to the caucuses, uh, uh, what's your what's your uh, message to them? What's your competitive advantage over your opponents? 
well, Donald Trump's running on his issues. Nikki Haley's running on her donors issues. I'm running on your issues and your family's issues. And my sole focus uh, is to turn this country around. We're in jeopardy of being the first generation of Americans to leave to our kids and grandkids in America less prosperous and less free than the one we inherited. Uh, I am not going to sit idly by and watch the managed decline of this country. Uh, I think the direction of this country is not inevitable. It's a choice and we can choose a better path. And so I'm the only one running that has a record of delivering on 100% of his promises. If you look at all the things that are wrong about this country and the source of that on the political left, I've beaten those folks in Florida on issue after issue. And maybe it's just the military officer in me, but I'm very mission focused. Uh, leadership's not about uh, entertainment or showmanship. Leadership is about producing results for the people that you represent. Uh, I have an unparalleled record of doing that uh, in Florida, and that's what I would bring to the presidency people would be able to uh, be very confident that uh, if I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to follow through and I'm going to get the job done. The time for talk is over. We don't have time for any more excuses. Uh, we've got to get it done, and I will do that. Governor Ron DeSantis, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Heartland Politics. All right. God bless. And that will continue with a prominent supporter of Governor DeSantis here in eastern Iowa. He's State Representative Taylor Collins, who represents the 95th House District in Des Moines. Uh, he's a Republican, obviously. He was just elected this cycle, and his district includes four counties. It goes up to uh, Loiza and Muscatine County, Des Moines County as well. Uh, Representative, thank you for taking the time to uh, join us this morning. Robin, thanks for having me on. Well, uh, the caucuses are right around the corner, and uh, it it was it started out um, with quite a few Republican candidates, really solid candidates with uh, good experience. It's like like a like a good buffet <laughs> at, yes. at a restaurant, probably. But you had a lot to choose from. What what led you to endorse uh, Governor DeSantis? Yeah, well, there's no doubt the the field is narrowing, and. Uh... The Republican base is quickly having to choose between a few candidates here. And uh, I ultimately think that the best person position to reverse uh, this country's decline is Ron DeSantis. I mean, you look at his record in Florida, I think there's a reason why, you know, he has far more endorsements than any other candidate. And that's simply because we understand how hard it is to get some of these things done, uh, like school choice, like tax reform, uh, like making sure that we're controlling the level of spending in state government. And uh, he just delivers on all those. He checks all the boxes. If he lays out an agenda or a promise, uh, he gets it done. And uh, I, I tell you what, if he can do just a little bit of that in Washington, D.C., it would be a total change uh, compared to the surrender caucus right now we have in D.C. How, how does take our listeners kind of inside your thought process on this? Uh, you know, you, you just got elected. You probably and I, I'm I'm. I'm, I'm assuming here, but you probably could have taken the safe route and just thought, well, you know, I think I'll just focus on my election and, and really not get involved in this and potentially make people mad. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, how did you do this? Did you meet with different candidates? Did you hear them talk? How did you kind of narrow this down and make your decision? You know, as a Republican in Iowa during the caucus cycle, uh, it, you get courted by a lot of candidates. You get phone calls from them. You say, hey, you know, let's come meet. Uh, we'll take out the lunch, whatever it may be. And uh, the simple answer is, is I was looking forward to endorsing Ron DeSantis before he even gave me a phone call. And uh, that's just simply because of what I saw him do in Florida. Um, you know, 
Republicans in Iowa could take the safe route when it comes to a lot of things. You think about, you know, issues that we maybe not having the educated voters as much about, like school choice and many other things. Uh, but that's not really the route we, we've taken here. And it's a similar to the route we, when I endorsed Governor DeSantis. Uh, we don't do things here in Iowa because we feel like it's the most politically expedient thing to do. Uh, we're really not interested in, honestly, the, the, the making sure we're in a perpetual majority. Uh, we're here to get things done. And uh, you know, the decision to endorse the governor really just came down to uh, he's the best choice, I believe, to move this country forward. We've got to make sure uh, that we can win next November. You know, unfortunately, Republicans have a culture of losing in this country right now. And uh, if we don't address that, we ultimately cannot uh, reverse the country's decline. I mean, if we go ahead and let Joe Biden run a basement campaign again, uh, we, we probably will lose. Uh, we have to make sure we have a candidate that can win next November, uh, ultimately carry candidates like myself over the finish line or down ballot, uh, because it's, it's not enough to fight. You have to fight and win. And uh, if we can't win the White House and take the Senate back and uh, hold on and get a stronger majority in the House, uh, there is there, we just don't have any chance to ultimately deliver on our conservative agenda. Um. I have to ask about former President Trump, uh, and and uh, you know here as a former president, he was elected 2016. Uh, I would imagine there was a lot of pressure, and there still is, uh, to to endorse Trump. I've heard some, from some other folks that uh, who didn't endorse Trump that there's already been some uh, uh, threats made and political threats, things like that. Um, was your reason? that you just stated representative that uh uh you're concerned about trump's ability to win was that maybe the deciding factor that led you over to uh governor DeSantis? it's it's the issue of electability but also the issue of just delivering on on our conservative agenda i mean you look back at the trump administration i'd say the first three years were pretty good uh, you know obviously the last year wasn't too great because he kind of turned the, the country over to anthony fauci and uh, we saw that firsthand here in Ireland. really there was only two governors uh, that stood up against the uh, Trump CDC and the administration in D.C., and that was Kim Reynolds and Ron DeSantis. Uh, and you also look at those two conservative governors, you know, had really tight races back in 2018. You know, both of them squeaked out a win by single digits, you know, one to three percent. And four years later, after delivering on the agenda that they laid out to the voters, they both won by around 20 points. So there's no doubt we have a framework of electability, but you know, we tried this in 2020. Uh, Donald Trump ultimately did not get us over the finish line. He didn't get a lot of candidates over the finish line. You look back at the uh, many of the midterms and some of these special elections like uh, in Kentucky, uh, we continue to get our teeth kicked in. Uh, we ultimately have to reverse the culture of losing in the Republican Party. And so it's not only an issue of electability. You know, I, I talked to a lot of uh, Quad City Republicans, and uh, they're just not willing to go with Trump another time. Uh, they appreciated the service to this country. Uh, they're pretty pleased with the results. You know, there's, there's, you know, obviously a lot more sanity uh, versus the Biden administration, uh, but they're just ready to move on. And ultimately, I'm looking for a different conservative standard there, and that's hopefully getting around the sense. Curious, um, as you know, obviously, because you represent this area, but uh, as as you know, uh, I mean, those river counties in Iowa, uh, ever since 2016, they're the battleground. Uh, I, I think anyway, my perception of it, ever since Trump won all those Obama-Trump counties, uh, and you're in, you, you represent several there, and they go all the way up to Dubuque, all the way down to uh, Lee County, um, 
those counties, it seems to me, and, and you would know better than I, but it seems to me they've got a lot in common as far as blue-collar factory towns that have lost jobs due to global trade agreements, things like that. And I think that was one of the reasons, I'm not going to say that's the only one, but that was one of the reasons they flipped from Obama twice, not just once, but twice to Trump. And they all stayed, I believe, with Trump in 2020. Um, is, is With that in mind, was that a factor as well with you as far as economic issues and, and getting the economy going again and getting manufacturing back that led you to uh, Governor DeSantis? I think so. I mean, you look at his record in Florida when it comes to the economy, obviously one of the, their, their states growing faster than any other, uh, their economy's doing better than any other. Uh, so he has a great record on the economy. But when it comes to some of these river counties, uh, you know, I think that we broke the ceiling there uh, when it came to uh, these river counties, many of these blue collar former union strongholds the Democrats held onto for a long time by simply putting forward a non-establishment candidate. And, uh, you know, I, I would say that Governor DeSantis is in that same vein. Uh, you know, there is nobody uh, who, who who fears a Ron DeSantis presidency more than the establishment Republicans in Washington, D.C. You know, he was a member of the Freedom Caucus out there. Uh, obviously, he was not somebody who went out there just to go ahead and go to the cocktail parties uh, and enjoy the lifestyle. He really was there to upset the apple cart. And uh, I, th I think that that's why many of the former Trump supporters find uh, Ron DeSantis so appealing is because they know he's the non-establishment candidate. You know, you've seen uh, in the last ditch effort here, the last couple of weeks, of the, really the establishment Republicans trying to prop up uh, Nikki Haley, you know, BlackRock, uh, all the uh, Wall Street firms and the, the folks in D.C. have been throwing money behind her. Uh, she's really lighting hundreds of millions of dollars on fire in this last ditch effort to show that she has some momentum. Um, if anything, I, I would say that Ron DeSantis just uh, helped slay really the establishment uh, the old Republican Party, uh, just like Donald Trump did. Final question, Representative Taylor Collins here, who uh, has endorsed uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, governor of Florida. Um, uh, I'll let you talk to directly to listeners who uh, may be undecided. They're planning to go to the Republican caucuses January 15th. They're sorting through. They feel like they've got some good choices. Uh, a, a couple minutes here. Uh, make the case to, uh, to to these voters to uh, join you in backing Ron DeSantis. You know, Robin, I supported Donald Trump in 2020, but uh, this next election is ultimately about uh, if we can win next November. Uh, we cannot afford former years of Bidenomics uh, in the corrupt deep state uh, that really has uh, sunk its teeth and, and nails into Washington, D.C. Uh, and we have to have somebody who has proven record of not only being able to win, uh, but ultimately being able to deliver conservative results. If you want a conservative fighter uh, like you've seen in Kim Reynolds, like you've seen in what we've done here in Iowa, uh, I think that candidate is Ron DeSantis. When it comes to every single issue, uh, that the uh, base of Republican voters are looking for, uh, he has delivered on that issue. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. And uh, we ultimately have to decide if we're going to reverse this country's decline or if we're going to choose entertainment uh, over ultimately delivering results. Okay. Uh, I want to thank you again, uh, State Representative Taylor Collins who lives in Minneapolis, represents the 95th House District in Iowa, uh, and is a strong endorser, as you just heard, of uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for president. Uh, this is the first of several interviews we'll be doing with Republican presidential candidates. And uh, Representative Collins, thank you again, and I hope to have you back sometime. That sounds good, Rob, and I appreciate it. And make sure, whoever you're supporting, uh, make sure to get out on caucus night on January 15th.
listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.